In the 1990s, I was director of what's called a residential treatment center for 72 teenage boys and girls in a uh, town in Westchester County called Dobbs Ferry. The name of the program is called St. Christopher's. And the 72 kids, they were kids who really didn't have families with whom they could live. Most of these kids had suffered abuse and neglect throughout their lives. Some of them had been in trouble with the police and the court system, and a lot of them suffered from emotional illness. In fact, we had a full-time psychiatrist and a psychologist on staff. The kids lived in six cottages spread across 18 acres. It was right on the banks of the Hudson River, and I lived in a house right next door. So I was there less than a year. Then one December morning, it was just freezing out that morning. I had walked my son to the school bus. He was in first grade. Went back to my house, sitting in my kitchen in my sweats, having coffee, and the work phone rings. And it was the supervisor of one of the female cottages. His name was Thornton, Arthur Thornton. And he just sounded panicked. And he says, listen, that new girl who arrived here the other day, Corinne, the one with the history of suicide, she just ran out the door into the woods and she's headed for the train tracks below. So I was like, I'm on my way. Just, just bolted out of my house with whatever I had on. I don't even know if I had a coat on. Anyway, I ran across the 18 acres, and I had read this girl's psychosocial evaluation. We did every, every youth who arrived there, we would have an, an evaluation of by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I had read hers, and she did have a history of attempting suicide several times in her life. So the fact that she was headed for the train tracks was not, it was scary. It was really scary. Anyway, I get at the cottage, and there's Mr. Thorne. He's standing outside, and he's pointing down towards the train tracks. But to get to the train tracks is this very steep ravine. It's this woods that you've got to go through. And he says, she went down there. I mean, it looked practically unpassable to me. I had no idea how Corinne had made it down there, and nor how I was going to go down there. So he said to me, I think the kids go down backwards. He said, I think they grab on their branches and vines and lower themselves down there. So I was like, what the hell? I'll try. I got to do something to try and get this girl. So I start lowering myself down this ravine. I'm grabbing on the branches. And then I hear him yell to me, I'll see if I can get you some help. So I had no idea what that meant. Eventually, I make my way down to the bottom of the ravine. Now there's a thick high concrete wall that was a barrier to the Amtrak train tracks just beyond it. So I managed to get over this wall. Now I'm dodging Metro North and Amtrak trains that are coming. It's rush hour in New York. These trains are whizzing by me. I'm looking for Corinne. I don't see her. Then I think, man, what if she made it over to the Hudson River and jumped in the river? So let me go over there. So now I got to make my way over all the tracks, get to the river. And I'm thinking, if she jumped in there, I don't know how she would survive. If, even if she was out there and I could see her, how I'm going to get to her without endangering my own life. So I get to the shore of the Hudson River. It's frozen solid, but it's funny the things you remember. The river is not really frozen solid. It's like a series of plates, frozen plates that are crunching into each other. Remember this crunching sound very specifically. And uh, anyway, I don't see her out there. So now I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, I hear this noise behind me. And I look back at the ravine where I had just come down. And there's a dozen kids from St. Christopher's who are coming down that ravine. Eleven boys and one girl.
And to me, it was like the cavalry. And those kids came down that ravine and about one-tenth of the time it took me, they hopped right over that concrete wall like it was nothing. And they ran over the train tracks. So I'm partly I'm thrilled that these kids are going to help me find this girl, but I'm also thinking I am legally and morally responsible for the lives and safety of these kids, and this is really an unsafe situation. Anyway, but on the other hand, I was glad to have them there. So they rushed up to me, and they said, Mr. Raymond, what do you want us to do? And I just stood there, and I was like, uh, I'm not sure. And it was funny how, you know, they're only like 14 or 15 years old, like one of them became the leader, you know, and he started breaking them up into groups. He was like, you four go north on the tracks this way. You three, you go south that way. You others, you go up the shore. You know what I mean? He broke them up into search parties. It was really funny. And I'm just standing there letting them do their thing until finally I said, listen, I'm going to scale back up that ravine and head towards the campus and let's use that as a home base until we, we hopefully find this girl. So anyway, I tried to scale the wall, which I had already scaled, to go back over. And for some reason, I couldn't scale it. And I'm hanging on this wall. The boys all went over it, lickety-split. I'm just dangling on this thing. And all of a sudden, I see this face of one of the boys who had gone over. Carl was his name. Never forget him. 15, African-American kid. Never smiled. Never said anything to anyone. And he pops back over and he looks down at me, doesn't say a word. And he takes one arm and he just reaches over and grabs me by the, like the, the shirt collar and like flips me right over the wall. I'll never forget how strong he was. So anyway, I made it over the wall. I scaled up the ravine, which for me was just as exhausting as trying to go down the ravine. I get up to the campus. I'm waiting. And sure enough, within about half an hour... Four of the boys show up, and they've got Corinne. And it turns out she'd been walking north on the train tracks, heading for the train station, I guess. And they found her and convinced her to come back. So they saved her, and she was okay. So all that day, I kept thinking, you know, what these boys and the one girl did was really extraordinary. You know, like, I'd really like to do something to reward them and recognize them. So we always had dinner at five, and the, the cooking staff would bring the dinners to the individual cottages. So I called the staff where the boys and the girl lived, and I said, you know, when dinner comes, don't let them sit down. Send them over to where the vans are. So anyway, they showed up at the vans, and I'm there, and I said, let's go. We're going to go into town. We're going to have a hero's dinner. We're going to go to this place, Double Days. Double Days was like a nice restaurant in Dobbs Ferry. It was like a little better than TGI Fridays, you know. It, it was nice, but it wasn't like extravagant. So we show, I drive them the double days. We show up, and I had called ahead to reserve a table. So there's a table for like whatever it was, 14 people. And uh, this one boy sees that table, and he's like, is that for us? You know? And I was like, yeah, yeah, go, go and sit down. So we all sat down, and they handed out the plastic menus, and one of the other boys says, uh, what's the limit, Mr. Redman? And I said, what do you mean, what's the limit? Well, how much, how much are we allowed to spend, you know, for, for a meal? And I said, listen, get what you want. Look at the menu, get what you want. And they, one boy was like, this is a Super Bowl of eating. So anyway, they ordered, and I wasn't really paying attention to them ordering. 
And then when the meals come, the waitresses and the waiters are putting like two plates, two entrees in front of every kid. And I'm like, what the heck? And suddenly it occurred to me, these kids had all grown up in poverty. The nicest place they had ever been was probably a McDonald's where you would go and order two hamburgers or two cheeseburgers. And that's what they were doing in the restaurant. So anyway, they just, I let them have it. And then they were like, you know, can we have dessert? I was like, sure, order dessert. And then I had made up, I'd gone on my computer and I printed out these little heroes certificate with each kid's individual name on it. And uh, so we had this little ceremony and I welcomed each kid up to the head of the table, gave him a certificate, shook his hand, you know, and everybody clapped. And it was really nice. It was really nice. In fact, I heard about that dinner for weeks. You know, that's all they talked about. That's all the staff talked about. And it was just a really nice moment. So, so that was 1993, and uh, now it's all these years later, you know, and I often wonder, you know, how are those boys today? You know, they were 15 then, 20, right? They're probably almost 40 years old, they're adults now, and, and I wonder how are they doing, you know? I hope they're happy, I hope they have good lives, um, but I don't know that, I don't know that. But I have this quote up on my office wall by Fyodor Dostoyevsky from his book, The Brothers Karamazov. And I love this quote. And uh, this is what he wrote. He said, you must know there is nothing higher and stronger and more wholesome and good for life in the future than some good memory, especially a memory of childhood, of home. People talk to you a great deal about your education. But some good, sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education. And if one has only one good memory left in one's heart, even that may sometimes be the means of saving us. And I hope the memory of that day, of those boys and that girl saving Corinne, I hope, and the memory of that dinner, the hero's dinner, I hope that memory has saved them for the last 23 years and that it'll save them for the rest of their lives. Thank you for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Liam Redman. This is Mark Redman, and the podcast is So Shines a Good Deed.